Good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. Such a blessing to see you all here today. Uh, after a wild couple of services with snow and ice and different things, we're seemingly back to relatively normal. Glad that you're all here. I'm glad that we get a chance to open uh, the word of the Lord. If this is your first time here or first time in a while. We're in the series. We're in a series in Romans going through the book of Romans. Um, we've made it to Romans chapter 11, and that's where we're going to be today. So if you would go ahead and start turning there. Romans chapter 11. Last week we started um, Romans chapter 11 by asking the question, has God rejected His people? Has God rejected His people? Paul um, denied the claim that God had rejected His people. His people are, of course, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Paul denied the claim that God had rejected His people and he used two... um, two ideas to to prove that. One would be that Paul was a believer. Paul was of the nation of Israel. He was a Jew of Jews, but he was a believer. And so Paul, by being a believer, uh, is denial there that God has rejected his people. But also, we discussed how there was a remnant of the people of God throughout history. Um, There was Noah and his family, and there was the 7,000 that refused to bow Um, their need to Baal, and then there's also those who were around in the time of Jesus. The first Christians were Jewish people, and um, it continues today. There's a remnant of Jewish people that have come to Jesus through faith and have been saved. And um, this section in Romans 11 is one of the hardest Uh, that I think I've preached in a while, maybe since Zechariah, this whole chapter of Romans 11, maybe since Zechariah. And so you're going to have to really tune in and pay attention uh, over the next few weeks because it's going to be uh, theological. It's going to be maybe like it feels like it doesn't directly relate to you, but it does. And uh, it's going to be some difficult things to talk about. Um, But ultimately, what we need to know and what we're going to continue in today is that God uh, has not rejected his people. Paul answers definitively, no, no, may it never be. And it's the same question I want to ask today. And as we go into further detail about that, uh, of course, the same answer is going to be stated. But it's the same question we're going to ask today. Has God rejected his people? Will you spend a few minutes praying with me this morning that God would open our eyes, illuminate our eyes, um, open our hearts to hear what he has to say and change our lives through his word. God, we love you. Uh, we are in awe of you because you have done uh, infinitely and matchlessly above what we could ever hope in our own lives. When you save us undeserving, when you save us unre- unremorseful, until you step in, unrepentant, until you step in, when you save us, you do it with mercy and your matchless grace. And we understand that it is by grace we are saved and through faith that it is not of ourselves. It is a complete gift of God from the beginning to the end. Lord, help us to never forget that. Help us to always be in awe of that. Help it to always break us out of our stupor, break us out of our complacency so that we may serve you faithfully. We may serve you and to the end. Lord, we trust you. We give you this day. We praise you for all that you will do through it and all that you've already done. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Has God rejected his people? No, the promise to Israel still stands. Now, one of the reasons this is going to be a difficult section, and it was last week, and you saw it last week, is that I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about God's purposes for Israel. But in the same breath, you're going to have to track in your mind and follow in a parallel path what this means for you. So I think it's apparent and I think it's obvious and at times when it's not so obvious I'll point it out. But what has God spoken to Israel that we know is true about Israel but also applies to us? Has God 
rejected his people. And the second answer to that, Paul says, no, look at me. That's the first answer. I'm here. No, look at the remnant that was in the day of Elijah. God has always kept a remnant. There's a remnant even now. Uh, So the first answer is, no, he's not rejected his people. There's a remnant of people that are still saved from God's people. But has God rejected his people? The answer today is, no, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was Israel's failure. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 11. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. See, I wasn't joking. It was right there. I just took the words right out of the Bible and gave you the first point. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Inclination is, when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, is to blame an unbeliever's failure on God. If God is sovereign, if He is electing, if He's the one that saves, then how does anyone have uh, any stance or any choice? Paul is emphasizing here what he has really already proclaimed in verses seven through eleven. He or seven through ten. He is emphasizing what he has already proclaimed in Romans chapters nine through eleven. In verses seven through ten, we see election. We see reprobation, both of which we will discuss in depth today. So that I hope you. Um, kind of take that on in a new light or at least in a stronger way. He discusses the Jews and he discusses all unbelievers and how they have rejected the gospel and that rejection was something that was foretold. It wasn't a surprise. Now Paul takes it further today and he reminds us a little more of why Israel did not obtain the righteousness for which they searched. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel was uh, uh, attempting to seek Righteousness. That's what they are attempting to see. But what they ended up doing was they created a system of self-righteousness. So they failed to obtain righteousness, which we know the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. I want to go into a little more detail about election today and reprobation. And I hope you will be able to define those terms and how I believe the Bible describes it. Now you heard last week and over time my stance on free will, right? I believe that free will exists. I believe that Adam and Eve were the perfect setup for free will if anyone could choose God for free will to be in that position where Adam and Eve were. And Adam and Eve, when they had all they needed, they had everything they wanted, they still were unable to choose God. They only had one rule and they chose to break it. Well, essentially one rule and they chose to break it. They were in perfect fellowship with God. Perfect unity. They walked with the Lord daily. And yet they could not keep it up on their own will or their own power. Adam and Eve proved what Paul said in Romans 3. That no one seeks after God. That all have fallen away. There is none righteous. In the same vein, Israel is what I think all the proof we need in election. Israel is all the proof that I think we need to believe what the Bible says about election. Why do I say Israel is proof of election? Well, Israel was set up in the same way Adam and Eve were to believe. They were set up the same way to be people of faith. And yet the vast majority of the nation of Israel did not believe. Now, if I'm in, if I look at the story of Israel and I'm inclined to think that logically it plays itself out, here's what I would think. If you've been given all the opportunity, if you've been given all the, the, the knowledge that you needed about God, and somehow it was up to you to choose God, that a larger portion of people that were given all that knowledge and all that opportunity would choose. But that's just not how the story of Israel plays out. You would think that they would choose at a higher rate. Uh, Why wouldn't they, right? He has said everything that they needed. He has proven himself in every way that they could possibly desire. Fifteen years ago, if someone had told me that my life was going to turn out the way it was, and I was able to see a picture of how I would have a wife that is loving and supporting and kind and makes me a better person, or that I would have four children, or I'd have a church family like I have. If 15 years ago, someone was point, to point that out to me and they were to lay it out, I would say, this is what I choose. I choose this. I wouldn't abandon that and go to something else. I would choose this and I would follow this with all fervor. Friends, if it were up to the people of God to choose God, then and they saw all that they had, all that was before them, and all that God has done, certainly they would choose the goodness of God. 
Israel, I think, is proof that election is a real and true thing. Because if you've given all that you know about God and He's done all that He has done for you, the obvious choice would be a vast majority of those people would choose to follow God. This is not obviously the only proof, but it is compelling, is it not? Now, I will spend some more time, and I hope to ease your mind a little bit today about election. Because there are people in our world um, who take the idea of election and they take it a step too far. And I want to ease your mind a little bit about election today. And we're going to do that. And I've got three ideas under this Israel obtained to fail what it was seeking and how Israel obtained to fail what it was seeking. And the first is this. They lulled themselves into a stupor. They lulled themselves into a stupor. Look at verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So, so now my point says they lulled themselves into a stupor. So you're going to have to follow me. This is where it's difficult. The Bible says God gave them. This is in the passive tense. This means that they were acted upon. So God gave them a spirit of stupor. They were acted upon. It was, the, it was the Lord's will to give them this hardness of heart, this spirit of stupor. But you have to understand what God did was He only used their sinful, and even in our days, our sinful spiritual condition that preexisted because of the fall of man to, to lull them into a stupor. Stupor here... It's literally the word for the tingly feeling you get when your leg or your arm or some body part falls asleep. It's the, you know how like you get up and you're like, ah, ah, I'm, you know, you're basically filled for a moment crippled. I thought that I woke up one time and I had slept on my arm and I had a indigestion and I thought I was having a heart attack. This is not a lie. I was like, Anna, you're calling 911. This is in the middle of the night. My arm would not unasleep. You know, wake up! I was like, I was like doing everything I could to shake my arm, and I had acid reflux, and my anxiety went high, and I was for sure I was having a heart attack. It's because there was a deadness, there was a sleepiness, but there was a still a sting that told me that something was wrong. And that's the word here used for stupor. It is to fall asleep in the sense that an appendage or a body part has lost its usefulness or its ability to move. This is just God acting upon a people who are already set in their own ways and withdrawing His goodness in order that they may just go further in the way that they were already going. Friends, this happens everywhere. We see it happen with Pharaoh. This is what happened with Pharaoh. We saw in Romans 9 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That God had before the foundation of the world set up Pharaoh to be the person that he was going to be in order that God's glory may be known. But what this really means, if we're practically playing it out, is this. Pharaoh was a sinner from the beginning. He was not righteous. He didn't seek after God. He had no hope to, or he had no desire to find God in the world. And God, because of the sin of Pharaoh, just said, all right. I'm removing myself even further so that Pharaoh is more darkened, he is more hardened, and he, it, is, it will be impossible for him to turn from his ways. Instead of an arm or a leg being tingly for Pharaoh, it was his whole body, it was his whole life. Pharaoh was a depraved and sinful human being like everyone else, but God used his sinfulness to blind him in order that his glory may be shown through the destruction of Pharaoh. Now the pattern of Israel and many who fall into this, or I guess I should say this happens to Israel and many who fall into the same way. It happens to us. What happens is there is this, there is this following of God. We follow God for a moment and then we get this level of prosperity. We get this level of comfort. We get this level of spiritual forthrightness that makes us think that we've got the world uh, under control. We know how it always is. And then all of a sudden, before we know it, you know, we've sat down for too long. We've been in this little blindness for too long and, and our appendages start falling asleep. And then it inhibits our moving. It inhibits our moving towards the Lord. And so Israel, this is the thing, the thing that happened with Israel, and it, it will happen with you. It has happened, I think, in this country. Um, not saying that this country is God's nation, but it has happened amongst the believers in this country. 
You follow God. You get a level of prosperity. You get a level of comfort. You begin to pursue other things in, your, in, in our prosperity and our comfort. And then God sees this for the sin that it is. And not he doesn't immediately punish. What he does is he says, okay, take it. And he withdraws himself. And he allows us to be our own destruction. He, w- he withholds his, he pulls back his mercy. He pulls back his uh, grace. He pulls back his restraining power over sin. And he allows us to fall into our own craziness. So sin and complacency and stupor happen. And then what happens after we're complacent, after we're sinful, after we fall in this stupor long enough is a hardening of our hearts. And then finally, God pulling away, all the way away, and then judgment. Judgment. We saw this with Israel when God would, the final result of that, would God would be, He would bring in a nation, He would conquer them, He would take them into captivity, they would have to fight polytheistic societies for, for countless, countless years because they had fallen away and the Lord left them to their own depravity. This is the pattern of Israel. And you say, I can't, I can't see how they would do that. But don't, don't get too cocky. Don't get too cocky. Because we follow this pattern in our own lives. And friends, we are only one measure of grace away from this pattern. We are only one day giving up if we don't trust the Lord away. One moment, one second from being able to fall into this pattern. This pattern is marked by God ceasing to strive with them with us are giving us up in Genesis. This is the exact wording that was used when it was talking about Noah. The Bible says that God will not strive with man much longer. Practically, this is God pulling off the restraints. This is God allowing us to ourselves. You've been in this situation before. You've, been, you've tried to teach somebody something that was younger than you, or maybe it was a child, and you try to say, let me show you how to do it. And they say, no, I've got this. No, I've got this. Let me show you. You haven't learned. You're not mature enough. You're not ready for this. No, I've got this. And you're like, okay, that's fine. And you back away. And then they make a mess of it. And then if... Lord willing, you're able to. You come in and you clean the pieces up and you help in. Now can I show you? This is what God does over and over again with His people. He does it with Israel. But friends, he's, does it, he's done it with you and me countless times already in our lives. The Lord, when we venture out on our own, when we think we have the strength and the power to do it, He'll say, okay. Okay, if you think so. And He'll pull back the restraints. And He'll allow you to be your own destruction. Listen, I don't think that America is a Christian nation. I don't think America has ever been a Christian nation. Now, you might disagree with me, and that's fine, but I'm going to explain what I'm saying. I think America was founded by Christian people and on Christian principles. But in general, I don't think America has ever been a Christian nation. But here's what I do think. And this is, this is what concerns me a little bit about our future. I think because there has been a faithful remnant of believers, number one. But also, for a long time, and this is what we have tried to sort of destroy, and I I think in a good way, a long time there has been a socially Christian, a socially religious remnant. And God has used that socially religious remnant to restrain sin. And now that that socially religious remnant is sort of disappearing, that socially religious remnant is leaving, America is headed into a... Now, I don't think that it's a good thing. We obviously want to follow the Lord in spirit and in truth. We want to be a faithful remnant. But because this socially acceptable remnant of America, Christian America, is going away, we are seeing a culture that is going, that God is slowly pulling away from, God is slowly removing His grace from, and is fulfilling a full onslaught, onslaught of themselves. The same cultural Christianity that we rightfully want to kill, I believe you can't be uh, in the middle. You know, the Lord has said multiple times, how long will you waver between two opinions? The same cultural Christianity that we have sort of uh, 
uh, denied is the same one that sort of has also helped God or has also allowed God to restrain his his judgment to prevent us from being kept to ourselves. But now it's not as much the same. You see it everywhere. You see it in leadership. Listen, I'll, I'll go on record as saying I think that Donald Trump did some amazing things for our country. I think he was a great president. But Donald Trump is also judgment on America. Because if America was a righteous nation, they would have a president who did good things for their country, but also wasn't a bad human. You know what I'm saying? If America was a righteous nation, we would get both. If America was a righteous nation, we wouldn't have a string of leaders before him and one of after them that didn't care anything but about greed and wealth and their own agenda. America is not a Christian nation. We are founded on Christian principles. We are founded on Christian ideals. But the Christians within America are redeemed. And we have a large role in saving the souls of those around us. And I want you to know, friends, unless there is a massive revival in this nation, and a revival, really, people need to be saved, we will put Sodom and Gomorrah to shame. We have, we have fallen into a stupor. The church has fallen into a stupor. The nation has fallen into a stupor. And God is slowly and steadily withholding and removing His grace. I said there is nothing stopping it earlier because even as much as there is a faithful remnant that still exists, the church itself is, has spent far too long spending time trying to make friends with the world in order that we might save them in order to do the things that God has called us to do and be faithful, in order that people are saved through our faithfulness to the Lord. God has removed His restraining hand from this country, which I think brings every abominable type sin, from sexual deviance to reversal of the roles in the family, to, I think, which is worse than all of them, the distraction from the gospel of the, of the church of God. And the majority of this country is just eating it up. Lulled into a slumber. Church, that tingly, you feel, that tingly feeling you feel now, it's a, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. And it can't just be shaken to wake up. You can't just kick your leg around. To get it going. God's that tingly feeling. That stupor feeling. That you feel. Is God calling his people. To wake up and stand. For the gospel of Jesus Christ. There must be fight. Within his people. There must be a stand. For holiness. There must be a remnant. Who are unwilling to bow their knee to Baal. But we must know this, friends. Our fight is not political. It's not socioeconomic or racial. But it is spiritual. It is a fight with the gospel of Jesus Christ. With the ultimate goal is the soul of man. With our reward being the glory of the Father. We must be careful, church, because we cannot be lulled into the same slumber that the, that the nation of God was. They were lulled into a slumber. The other reason why they have rejected Him is their wealth and knowledge and their spiritual prosperity have trapped them. they become a trap. They became content in their prosperity. Look at verse 9. And David said, Let their, their, their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot uh, see and bend their backs forever. This, uh, Paul is taking a psalm. It's an imprecatory psalm from Psalm 69, 22 through 23. This is David praying for the destruction of his enemy. 
Now, Paul is using it here to explain why the people of God have rejected Jesus and how it was to their to the destruction. Paul uses the word table from David. The table here represents prosperity. A full table equals prosperity. It equals rest. It equals peace. But their table, their full table, became a snare, which is the opposite of the intended purpose. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, had an embarrassment of riches as it came to walking in faith. They had enough to easily recognize the Messiah, and yet for the most part, they missed it. Paul reminds us of their embarrassment of riches in Romans 9.4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The patriarch, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed be forever, amen. Their table was full, and yet it became a track to them because they could not get past the system that was developed To let them see Christ in the first place. The system that they idolized. The system that they changed. They worshiped the things that were created and not the creator. Friends, listen. You need to hear this. Blessings, all blessings, even if they are from God, are useless if they are not used in our lives to point us towards Jesus. Spiritual blessings, a full table, physical prosperity, spiritual prosperity, whatever it may be, all the blessings that we could have are useless, are pointless if they are not used to point us to Jesus. They worship the things created and not the Creator. Truthfully, friends, if we do not use these blessings properly and understand them, they not only are worthless to us, but they lead us to a harder heart. They lead us to a moving further and further away from the gospel. Let's think about a few that can do this. Baptism is a blessing. It's an embarrassment of riches that will lead us either to God and closer to Him or further and further away from the gospel. You might wonder, how could baptism lead us further away from the gospel? Well, one way that baptism can lead us further away from the gospel is if we are unsaved, but yet we are submerged in the, submerged in the baptismal waters, it may lead us to a false confidence that not only leads us to not be saved, but a harder and harder heart because we think, I'm already there. I'm already there. Baptism, which is a blessing of God and a blessing to the church, can lead us to a hard heart. But it could also sort of drive a person crazy. It could be, you could, you could be a person who's in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or 80s, and you say, I was baptized at X day. I was baptized on this day. This is proof that I'm saved. And what it does is not give you a false. Uh, since not just a false sense of confidence that you are saved, like the first example, but it also gives you this idea that if you were baptized and you went through the steps and yet you are living a life that is unpleasing to God and yet you think you were saved, and you're, then you're a hypocrite. And if you're a hypocrite and you can't get right, then no one can get right, so it must be a false religion. I mean, there are a million ways we can use the blessings of God To turn around to be a curse, to be something that hardens us. Communion can be used in the same way. What about physical blessings like material possessions? There are a lot of people who started out right with material possessions. God blessed them and blessed them and blessed them. They started out using them in a proper way. And then over time, they lost the purpose of their using their material blessings to the glory of the Lord. Friends, any blessing, any blessing that is not used to point us to Jesus and others to Jesus is a waste of that blessing. If they are not used to the glory of the Lord, we might as well not have them. So we go on in our physical prosperity and we harden our hearts because we think somehow that we've done this ourselves. We think somehow that we deserve this. And if we give any money to the Lord or if we do anything to help the poor, it's because we are sacrificing of ourselves and not giving back to God what is His. Blessings, physical blessings that are not used to the glory of Jesus will be used to further harden our hearts 
and pushes away from him. Think about the church. The greatest blessing I have in my life outside of salvation and outside of my family, but on par, I think, with my family, you, you might think that's crazy to hear, is the church. But how often is the church used as a means to harden more hearts? When we're a church full of gossip or dissension or anger. How many times have you heard someone say, often using this as an excuse, um, they, I've been a part of a church like that before. There's just a bunch of hypocrites. Or whatever it may be. The church, which is essentially a ble- the, one of the greatest blessings God could give anyone, can be used to harden our hearts even further. Or how many of you heard, I've tried that before. I was faithful in church when I was this age. Or people who are still in church today, in church gathering today, and it gives them a false sense of confidence. But what it's really doing is hardening their hearts further and further. I believe this is where our country fits in. This is where we are in our country. And in the church particular. We have an embarrassment of riches. Which lulls us to sleep. It lulls us to slumber. And that prosperity has become a snare for us. A stumbling block for us. In following the Lord. Israel failed to obtain this because... They were content in their self-righteous ways, in their keeping of the law. And they will be content indefinitely in that perceived prosperity. Now, I know that that is a sermon in and of itself, but I need you to reset your mind here. okay? and I want to talk about this last point just for about 10 minutes. Most were passed over. I want to go back to verse seven. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking because most of them were passed over. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So there's three sections of people here, uh, and they overlap. One is Israel as the nation. The other is the elect out of Israel. And the other is the hardened heart out of those people. What we need to understand... And what Romans chapters 9 through 11, the Gospels in general, Paul's letter to the other church, letters to the other churches, what it is telling us is that there is a vast majority of people, of the original chosen people of God, Israel, but also of the world, who are passed over. Chapters 9 through 11 has set up for us, and what our verses today are reminding us is the problem if you want to call it that, of election and how it works. Now I'm going to do my best for the next few minutes to explain what I think election is and how it works and how it doesn't. If I were to try to use one word to describe the way I view salvation, it would be um, Calvinist or Calvinistic. And I'm only using, I don't use that term often because people just kind of spit at it. Some people who know spit at it when they hear that term. But the reason I'm using this term is so I can point out uh, a dangerous area of this. There is a group of people that come from a Calvinistic background that are called hyper-Calvinists or that have been called hyper-Calvinists. Now with these people, as it concerns salvation, they believe, and I think wrongly so, that God acts in the same way in electing people to salvation As he does in condemning people to hell. This is called double predestination or equal ultimacy. So if you want to know those terms, you can write those down and I will will give you the definition of that again. Double predestination or equal ultimacy is this. That God acts in the same way in saving as he does in condemning. Now this leads to all sorts of other problems. Uh, one being, for a hyper-Calvinist, their unwillingness to accept to share the gospel. They say, well, God is going to elect to salvation and he's going to condemn to death. So what is my motivation to preach Jesus? But there's a whole plethora of problems. I'm not going to uh, talk about the, all of the issues with um, 
that uh, double the hyper Calvinism or whatever today. But I want you to know that I reject the notion, as those people would say, uh, of double predestination or equal ultimacy. And here's what I think is the biblical and the best way of thinking about election. The Westminster Confession of Faith stated it this way. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious grace. What that is basically saying in modern day English is God chooses some to salvation, but he passes over others. Now I believe that God actively, specifically, specially before the foundation of the worldly calls those who are going to be salvation, uh, to, those who are going to be saved to salvation. And I believe that he chooses over many. Or he, he passes over many. Meaning, meaning this, that he treats the rest in the same way that he treated Pharaoh. Meaning that he treats the rest in the way in this way. There is none that is righteous. There is none who seeks after God. He pulls some out of their own sin and depravity and saves some. And then he lets the rest just be what they're going to be anyway. So he doesn't. Now, you might not understand this nuance, but it's important. He doesn't. He saves and elects and he calls. Right. But he doesn't condemn in the sense that it is appointed and it's just happening. What instead. Now, here's the nuance. Instead, he allows man and his free will to condemn himself. God actively and specifically calls some to salvation and others he passes over and allows them to stay in their own sin. Here's the best illustration that I can come up with this. I chose my wife. I mean, thank God she chose me. That's the, where it falls apart there. But I chose my wife. I pursued her. I courted her. I wooed her. Believe it or not, I wooed her. She probably doesn't believe it anymore. I wooed her. I, I pursued her. I chose her. And then I covenant, covenanted, covenanted, covenanted it with her. When I chose to make that covenant, that's probably what I should have said. When I chose to make that covenant with her, guess what I did? I rejected every single female in the world. That's what I was saying. I rejected every other female for forever in the world. Even if I had never met that person, I rejected that person. If, I, if it was an ex-girlfriend, I rejected that person. I rejected every single person in the world when I chose to make a covenant with my wife. So here's what God does. God calls His people out. He woos us. He romanticizes us. He picks us. He covenants with us. That's what I should have said. He covenants with us. He saves us. But he only does that to his elect. And by default, by default, he allows everyone else to just go about their business. Everyone else to just go about doing what they were going to do anyway. By default, he passes over everyone and leaves them in their own sin. Listen, you've heard it said, God loves the world. You look at John 3.16 and said, for God, so love the world. And I believe that. And here's why. Because he created the world. He looked at the world knowing it was going to sin. And he said, it's good. It's not good because it's good. It's good because it's an image of God. It's good because He created us in His image. And as image bearers, He loves us. As image bearers, He is not willing that any should perish, but all that should come to repentance. But in His plan, some will perish without Him. And only some will come to repentance. Steve Lawson, a pastor I love and follow, came up with this list and 
You know, I could have come up with the same list, but there's no sense in reinventing the wheel here. Plus, I added it and I was a little lazy in it. Election is what we don't deserve. Oh, by the way, I forgot to define this term. Election is the calling out. The passing over is reprobation. Reprobation. It's the passing over. And so Steve Lawson defines or distinguishes these two terms. Election is what we don't deserve, we get. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be redeemed. Reprobation is what we do deserve, we get. Because there is none that seeks after God, because there is none that loves God, none that follows God. We deserve eternal hell. We deserve punishment. And if we are not saved by grace through faith, that's what we get. Election is then mercy. And reprobation is justice. Election is heaven by grace. Hell, uh, rejection is hell, a reprobation is hell by human will. Election is not condemned for sin. Reprobation is condemned for sin. Election is chosen. Reprobation is passed over. It's a lot, right? Your first inclination was probably not for a lot of you anymore, but for most of you, your first inclination is to say, man, that doesn't sound like the God that I've read about in the Bible. That doesn't sound like the God that loves. That doesn't sound like the God that would send His Son to save. So what can we do with this? What do we do with this? When these truths of the Bible bring up difficult thoughts for us. The first is when we think in our own worldly and limited mindset that this is unfair of God. What we can do is we can pray and work to change our mind. Because I will tell you, God is not going to change. We can work to change our mind. And here's how we do that. And you've, if you've been in here any given time, you've heard me say this a thousand times. Here's how we do that. We should view salvation in this way. Not, why would God save some and pass over others? We should view salvation in this way. Why would God save any? Why would He send His Son at all? If He is the God of the universe, or excuse me, since He is the God of the universe, and since He has given us the opportunity, the perfect setup to follow Him, and through Adam and Eve, sin entered the world and we rejected Him, why wouldn't He just start over? As a matter of fact, do you remember what He said to Moses in Exodus? He said, dude, I'll destroy these people if you want me to. And I'll start over with just you. God was willing to make Moses Adam number two. But he didn't. So we don't ask this question, why does God save some and pass over others? We ask, why does God save anyone? Anyone. Friends, if we can ask ourselves honestly that question every day as a believer, it should change the way we function in everyday life. If we can reroute our perspective to think, why would God save anyone? And then to pinpoint and sort of, and sort of hone in on anyone. Why would God save me? If we, can, if we can have that mindset, and this is why you've heard me say it countless times, because friends, I, you, we still don't have that mindset to the depths that we should. Why would God save me? Listen, I know what goes on in my mind in a traffic jam or when someone cuts me off. Why would God save that guy? I, hey, listen, there's other thoughts and other things that I have that you wouldn't love me as much if I told you about, okay? And you get most of my thoughts, so just think about that for a second. 
You wouldn't love me as much if you, if you knew about those. And I look at my life and I think, Lord, thank, number one, thank you for sanctification. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that keeps those thoughts from becoming reality or those ideas from becoming reality. But also, why in the world would you choose to redeem me, a person who, after being saved for countless years, can't even get his thought life right? When our perspective is changed on God as to why would He save anyone as opposed to why would He save some and pass over others, we begin to, under, we begin to understand the heart of God more and I think we begin to follow Him more faithfully. When we have this thought in our mind and understanding, the second idea, the second thing we can take this with or from this is we need to practice reverence and fear and trembling in our own life when it comes to God. Not only do we need to change our perspective as it comes to God, but we need to practice reverence, fear, and trembling when it comes to God. We should never, and often we do, we should never take our sin lightly. We should never just assume that because we believe we're saved by grace, that means that our sin is just... Uh, of easily forgiven and easily overlooked. And just because we forgot about what we did yesterday and moved on doesn't mean that God has forgotten. We should practice reverence and fear and trembling. When we come here on Sunday morning, out of the abundance of that reverence and fear and trembling... Worship should be a celebratory time, but it should also be something that's very somber at times. Getting our minds and our hearts and our lives right under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we open the Scriptures, you know, there should be more Bibles stained with tears than there are Bibles covered with dust. Because when we open the Scriptures, when we uh, practice reverence and fear and trembling in our own lives, it does nothing more but draw us closer to the things that God loves. The things that He wants for us. Friends, we must be careful to practice fear and reverence and trembling. Because the opposite of that is stupor. The opposite of that is sleep. And ultimately, for even some of the people in here, it might mean an eternal rejection by God of someone who was relatively spiritual on earth. When we think it's unfair of God, we change our mindset. We practice reverence, fear, and trembling in our own lives. And friends, this is also vastly and deeply important. Knowing what we know, we share the gospel as part of God's plan, in order to be a part of God's plan, and because the lives of those around us actually depend on the proclamation of the truth of God. Church, we must wake up. The only, the only remedy for a leg that's fallen asleep is to get up and walk around. And it stinks for a little while, right? Because you've got that tingle. And you've got that limp. And it's the pain of moving. I've sat sometimes for a very long time and my legs have noticeably fallen asleep. I'm not going to tell you where. But I've sat sometimes for a very long time and my legs have fallen asleep. And I don't even feel it anymore. The longer you sit, you don't even feel it. You feel that tingling and then it just goes away. It's only when you stand up and start moving that it gets hard to walk around. Where you start feeling it. Church, we need to stand up. We need to wake up. We have been in a stupor too long. And the answer is not socioeconomic. The answer is not give more money. It's not be more wealthy. It's not have less poor. You'll always have the poor, Jesus says. The answer is not political. We've seen a conservative president be stupid. Countless. We've seen a liberal president be stupid. We've seen conservative and liberal, liberal presidents, uh, our leaders, be dumb. It's not political. It is not race. It's not figuring out which race or ethnic or people group is more um, uh, hurt or more damaged or more persecuted. It's about 
Finding the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, receiving the gospel, and living the gospel. We, I include myself, we need to wake up. We need to have a reverence and a fear and a trembling about us that draws us to action. That changes first those people around us. Because you've heard me say it before in the past that if you are living a spiritual life, if you are living in the Spirit, there is no option but the people that are around you to be changed by that life. It changes first the people around us. And in sort of an exponential effect, it changes the world. Pray with me. Lord, You're so good. Thank You for Your saving power. Thank You for loving us. For drawing us closer to You. For knowing the hairs on our head before the foundation was set. You knit us in our mother's womb. You love us. You care for us. You have been that intimate with us from the beginning. Lord, I can't understand why You save anyone. But I also know, as Psalm 115 says, You're in the heavens and You do what You please. Thank You, Lord, that it pleased You for Your glory to rescue me. I am so undeserving. I've, given a, I've been given a bounty of spiritual riches. And yet even I daily waste them and squander them. I've been given a bounty of physical blessings. And yet I plan and figure out more ways to heap and add to that blessing. I've been given hours, days, months, years, and even I look to redeem those for myself instead of the gospel. Would you forgive us, Lord, when we take that bounty and in our stupor we live for ourselves? Would you help us in our hearts and in our minds and with our actions to turn every blessing that we've been given as a means of glorifying the Father through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Spirit of God. Until we do that, Lord, and I mean this, wreck us. Make it impossible for us to sleep. Make it impossible for us to just exist. Waken our hearts to You. Form our lives around You. We pray and ask these things in the matchless, wonderful, and the only name given among men whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. Amen.